1947, California's infamous Black Dahlia murder inspired the largest manhunt in Los Angeles' history. Yet despite an unprecedented allocation of money and manpower, police investigators failed to identify the person responsible for the sadistic murder and mutilation of beautiful 22-year-old Elizabeth Short. Decades later, former LAPD homicide detective turned private investigator Steve Hodell launched his investigation into the gruesome unsolved crime. It led him to a shockingly unexpected perpetrator, his father, Dr. George Hodell, who he discovered has been a suspect in the infamous murder case for more than 50 years. Today, I join Steve Hodell for a fascinating discussion about his New York Times bestselling book, The Black Dahlia Avenger. We explore Elizabeth Short's case in depth, and Steve details why he believes his father, Dr. George Hodell, is not only responsible for her murder, but was a prolific serial killer for 40 years. He explains why a police cover-up may have stopped the Black Dahlia murder and several other lone woman murders from ever being solved. I'm GC Nova. This is Death by Misadventure. fascinated about your background. Can you tell me about your career as a homicide detective? I'm one of those old dinosaurs. At 17 years old, I went into the Navy for four years, got out, and in 1963, I joined LAPD. It was part of the new breed. Chief William Parker was our new chief, and he was going to clean up Dodge. So he brought a lot of us young, eager guys aboard, and I started out in 63 and went through the academy, and basically four years in, five years in patrol, uniform patrol, working different divisions. And I wound up in the Hollywood division patrol, worked that for a few years. And then I switched over and, and went into detectives as a young man with five years on the job. And basically worked all the different tables, burglary, robbery, juvenile, child sex crimes, and then wound up working the homicide table. And basically, I stayed at Hollywood Homicide for my entire career, 17 years in homicide, over 300 murder investigations during my career. A lot of crime, a lot of murders back then in the 60s, 70s, 80s. So it was like every three or four days, we'd have a new murder. So it was quite challenging. A lot of good guys working with a lot of good guys we had the highest solve rate on the department. We're running about um, 75, 80% solve, which was quite a bit higher than the average. In 1986, I retired from LAPD and moved up north to Bellingham, Washington. Uh, I had two young boys and wanted to get them out of the mean streets of LA. So retired and I got a PI license up there, both in California and Washington State and started doing criminal defense work. So 24 years on the, for prosecution, and then 20, it's been about now 35 years for the defense, but all criminal. That's fascinating. What, what did you find was the biggest challenge being a homicide detective? Basically, remaining objective. Basically, treating 
everybody the same, whether they were from the top of society or the bottom. Going in there and, and remaining objective and being sincere, not playing any real games. Again, a lot of it had to do in solving murders. A lot of it has to do with getting admissions, getting cop outs. If you go in there with a chip on your shoulder or something like that, you're, you're not going to get a confession. You're not going to get the truth from the suspect. So basically, I'd say I was taught how to be objective throughout a case. And it was hard because you'd walk in there and there's a father that's just beat his seven-year-old son to death. And you have to have, give him a cigarette, a cup of coffee, say, I'm sure there's another side to this. Let's talk about it. And that's hard because inside you're raging about the absolute horror of, of the crime itself. But at the same time, you need to get a cop out. So that was probably the biggest thing I learned and, and was fairly successful at. Why do you think some murders go unsolved? There are a bunch of reasons. One of the factors is time. Like I said, when you're jumping from a new murder every three or four days, you just don't have the time to be able to put into any one investigation. You'd love to be able to work them all for six months or a year. And it's changed a lot. You know, in my day, of course, we didn't have DNA. We didn't have all the sophisticated tools at hand that we have today. The clearance rate should be a lot higher. And of course, DNA is, wasn't even heard of back then. I think DNA was discovered in England in around 83, as I recall. And I retired in 86. So it was not a tool in our kit. So I want to talk about the Black Dahlia murder. And for our listeners that may not be familiar with it, which I would be surprised since it's such a famous case. But if you can give an overview of the Black Dahlia murder, and then we can talk more about the case and your connection to it. The Black Dahlia murder occurred on January 15th, 1947 in Los Angeles, about five miles south of Hollywood in an area called Lemur Park. A young woman was walking her young daughter, three-year-old daughter, in a stroller to market. And she looked over in the vacant lot and she saw what she thought was a mannequin. And she looked again and she says, I don't know if that's a mannequin or is it a body? or what? Anyway, she said, that's going to scare the kids on their way to school. So she hurried down about a block and door knocked a place, asked to use the phone, called the police, said there's a a body or a mannequin or something out, out here in the vacant lot. LAPD responds, and to their horror, it's it's a woman, completely nude, completely severed in half, surgically, and carefully posed just off the sidewalk on this vacant lot. And she's a Jane Doe, no ID, no clothing, no nothing. So she remains a Jane Doe for a couple of days, and they send her fingerprints back to the FBI. And they get a hit immediately within several hours of receiving it. And her name is Elizabeth Short. She's 22. She's from Medford, Massachusetts. That begins this incredible investigation. The reporters actually, back in those days in the 40s, the reporters were often way ahead of the cops in, in the investigation. They had the resources and the expense accounts and stuff. So, of course, it became headlines you know, this nude body posed. And then the name, one of the aggressive reporters found out that she hung out in a, a pharmacy, a, a soda fountain in Long Beach, and that the guys in there, and this is during 
the war years. They called her the Black Dahlia when she came in there. She had long black hair. There was a movie that came out that same summer called The Blue Dahlia, which was a famous uh, a noir film, very popular. And this was kind of a spin-off of that. They called her the Black Dahlia, even though the Blue Dahlia was a bar, not a person. But anyway, so you have that name, Black Dahlia and a beautiful young woman cut in half and all of these gory details. So it was headlines for like 30, 40 uh, days above the fold. They started investigating it and, and probably L.A.'s most infamous crime to this day. Did they initially have any suspects that they were looking at? Yeah, they found out some boyfriends she was dating. There was a guy named Red Manley, who was actually the last person to supposedly to see her alive. He had met her in Long Beach. He was a married guy, but he met her on the street. She was at a bus bench, and he pulled up and introduced himself. And she wanted to come back to Los Angeles. He gave her a ride back dropped her, she had a suitcase, which she dropped at the bus station, checked it into a locker. And then he took her to the Biltmore Hotel downtown and she was gonna meet her sister. So he drops her off there and that's the last he's seen of her. He's located, he's identified, becomes a suspect. He's given a polygraph, passes the poly and, and given a clean bill of health. He was a suspect, he was actually arrested initially held for 48 hours, and then released. Ultimately, they would discover that he was in San Francisco at the time of the murder, so he was cleared on that in the later investigation. They checked with a bunch of different boyfriends and army people, and no real hardcore suspect uh, became public at that time. What was um, Elizabeth Short doing in Los Angeles? Had she been living there for an extended period of time or did she come out to Hollywood to be an actress or do you know what her background was? One of the things on this, JC, is that there's so much myth wrapped around the truth. And in all my other investigations, basically you start out with a tabula rasa, a blank tablet, and you move forward. In this case, I started out with all of this myth and half-truths and complete falsities I had to kind of remove the myth before I could move forward. So there were a lot of myths. One of those was, as you say, she came out to become an actress and be discovered. Not true. She never had any desire to become an actress. She was never involved in any films, no testing, nothing like that. She was basically just an innocent girl. She was 22 going on 16, let's say. She'd left home early and kind of bounced around. She'd gone to Florida. She was all about falling in love and wanting to marry Lieutenant Wright. She wanted to marry a military guy and live happily ever after. Quite naive, she ultimately came out to the shark-infested waters of Los Angeles and Hollywood. Of course, lots of guys wanted to date her, and she did date, but she wasn't a prostitute. She was, like, dating for dinner. So, basically, she was a naive, innocent girl that just got caught up with some bad people. What did she do for a living? Did she have a job at the time of her murder? She didn't. She was transient. She was staying in Hollywood, sharing a a room with five other young women, a dollar a day, I think it was. 
she was just kind of down and out, had no real money, had no job. She had done some waitressing in Florida, but when she came out to L.A., she, she really had no job. I don't want to say living off men, but she was just hand to mouth and just having a hard time and no real income or of any kind. What was her relationship like with her family? Was it a troubled background or was she close with her sister? The father had left them in the 30s and he had just taken off. His car was found by a bridge. So some say that he it was suspected that he committed suicide. As it would turn out, he came to California. And he was, a, I think, a bit of an alcoholic and living in Northern California. She had four sisters and a mother. My mother had a tough time. Imagine raising five girls on her own. Then she discovered that her father was alive in Northern California. They got a letter. So she went to visit him, and that didn't work out at all. She was there like 10 days, and the father wanted her to be his housemaid, and that wasn't working for her. So she went to Camp Cook, which is about 50 miles north of L.A., the military base there, and she got a job there working at the Post Exchange, PX. And she won a little contest there called the Camp QD. She won that because of her good looks. In 1943, she was with a couple of army guys in a bar in Santa Barbara. And she wasn't drinking, but but she was only 19 at that time. And she got arrested for minor possession, meaning she was in the bar underage. She was sent back to Medford, Massachusetts on the train. Ultimately, she would come back out to California and and bounce around. She bounced around San Diego for a while and then back to Los Angeles. And then the last time she was seen was, as the legend goes, she was dropped off by Manley at the Biltmore Hotel in downtown L.A., which was a fancy hotel. She was there for a couple of hours making phone calls to somebody And then she was supposedly last seen walking out the door into the fog and was missing for five days. And then her body was found. So in the beginning, the killer began contacting the police within a week of the body's discovery. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So three or four days after the body was found, the killer starts sending in notes And these were like kidnapped ransom notes, cut and paste notes, taunting the police, catch me if you can type things. On the 23rd of January, he sends in a note saying, here are some of her belongings. And he sends some of her personal effects, her birth certificate and other items to the press. He also calls the press and talks to James Richardson, who was the editor of one of the large newspapers there and taunts him and says, I guess you're having trouble solving the case, huh? And Richardson says, yeah, we sure are. We sure could use some help. He says, well, maybe I'll send in a few of her belongings to see if that'll help you along. He sends in this package of belongings and stuff. Uh, A few days later, he sends in another note. Basically, he says, turning myself in on January 29th, had my fun at the police and he signs it Black Dahlia Avenger. Okay. All the others had been disguised or cut and paste notes and stuff, but this was actually in undisguised handwriting. So it's my feeling that he actually initially was going to actually turn himself in. He didn't, but he was going to. 
because this was under Sky Sanity. And it, it went on from there. Your father was questioned and released three times on different murder cases. And when did you first begin to suspect that your dad might have a connection to Elizabeth Short's murder? What was your relationship like with your father, George? I was very close to my father. He was this remarkable individual. So George Hodel was born in Los Angeles in 1907, Russian Jewish parents, a child prodigy at the age of nine. He's playing his own piano concerts at the Shrine Auditorium, downtown Los Angeles, highly gifted pianist. He's also intellectually gifted. He scores the highest high school scores in the history of Los Angeles. He's off the charts, 186 IQ, one point above Einstein, graduates at 14 from high school, goes to Caltech, a prestigious university here in Pasadena. Has Not only is he intellectually precocious and, and a musical talent, but he's also sexually precocious, has an affair with a professor's wife at Caltech. She gets pregnant, busts up her marriage. She goes back east to have the child which she aptly names Folly. Little young George, still a teenager, goes back and says, I love you, I want to marry you, I want to raise our child. And the woman laughs at him and says, George, you're a child yourself. Get out of my life. I never want to see you again. He comes back to L.A., passes himself off as 21, starts driving taxi cab around Los Angeles, then becomes a crime reporter for the Los Angeles Record, which was one of the big newspapers here. And he's riding around, this is during Prohibition, he's riding around with LAPD vice squad, kicking door, they're kicking doors, arresting the judge's wife with the young blonde. He graduates and starts riding around with LAPD homicide guys, writing these tabloid stories about the bloody ace of spades next to the body, this sort of thing. He then starts double dating with another friend of his, teenage friend named John Houston, who will eventually become the famous film director. But at that time, he was just the son of Walter Houston. His father was a famous stage and screen actor. And they were double dating. And John was dating a woman by the name of Emma Leah. George was dating a woman by the name of Dorothy. And two or three weeks into their double dating, they switched. John fell in love with Dorothy. They would run off together, get married, and go off to New York. Dad and Emma Leah, you know, I guess it's you and me, babe. She gets pregnant. They all go north to Berkeley, where Dad enters pre-med, four years there. He then goes across the bay to UC San Francisco, gets his medical degree, has another affair with another woman, and Emilia has a child named Duncan that's born to him, so that will eventually be my half-brother. And then he has another affair with another Dorothy, not the same one. She gets pregnant, and they have a daughter named Tamar. So there's the two women and the two children, and he's just got his medical degree. And he goes off and leaves the families and goes to New Mexico and Arizona as a young surgeon. He becomes a sole surgeon at a logging camp. He comes back to L.A. after a couple of years. And at this point, the Dorothy that married John, they've been married seven years. They break up. She comes back, hooks back up with George, my older brother, Mike is born in 39. I come along in 41. My brother Kelvin comes along in 42. Dad joins the health department, L.A. County, 
quickly rises to the top, becomes a VD specialist, and he's a VD czar of L.A. County, head of the L.A. County Health Department. He buys this rather famous home, the Soden House, which some of your listeners may be aware of, Frank Lloyd Wright Jr. built. It's a Mayan temple in the heart of Hollywood. We move in. We're the three little princes. Dad's the king. Mom's the queen. He has all cocktail parties and all of this. And everything goes swimmingly until 1949 when there's a knock on the door. Dr. Hodel, yes, LAPD, you're under arrest for incest. So remember that Tamar, the one that was born in 35, she's now 14. She's been living with us. And he's arrested for having sex with her and a couple of other adults in the bedroom. He gets himself Jerry Geisler, who was the Johnny Cochran of his day, top criminal attorney, three-week trial. Comes back innocent, not guilty. They paint her with a pathological liar brush. Dad, shortly after that, leaves and goes off to Hawaii for three years, then on to Manila, gets married again, has four more children, (laughs) is married to them about four years, leaves them, hooks up with his secretary, June, and they get married, and he comes back, ultimately, he comes back to San Francisco in 1990. And that's when I hooked back up with him, and for the last decade of his life, uh, we become very close. I go down and see him. He comes up and sees me and uh, on a regular basis. And then I get that 2 a.m. phone call from June in 1999. Your father's here, the paramedics. He's just, he's collapsed. He's dead. Come down. So that starts me on this incredible investigation. I go down. I'm with June. We're talking about the great man and his remarkable life. She says, I think he would want you to have this photo, photo book, and it's a small three by five inch photograph going through their photos of my mom, my brother's family, Man Ray photographs. Dad was, I don't know if you know who Man Ray was. He was a surrealist, famous surrealist, and he was our family photographer and very close friends with George. Anyway, and then there's this dark haired woman, nude from the waist up, apparently. And I said to June, who's this? She says, I don't know somebody your father knew from a long time ago. So I look at it, and I don't know to this day why Black Dahlia came to mind, but it did. And, and it just kind of came and went. I didn't think much of it. So two days later, I'm talking to Tamar, my half-sister on the phone. She's in Hawaii. We're talking about our dad what a remarkable life. And out of nowhere, she says, well, you know, he was a suspect in the Black Dahlia murder. <laughs> and I'm saying, Tamar, what the hell are you talking about? Where is this coming from? And she says, well, he didn't do it, but he was a suspect. And I said, well, there's no way. I said, you know, I can, with my experience, I can show he had nothing to do with it. That starts me on this incredible journey. I have to relocate back to L.A., and I follow the evidence, and it just keeps, doors keep opening, and secrets keep unfolding. And before I know it, I've made a case against him. I submit that secretly to the D.A., and he comes back with, a, I'd file on at least two. Of them. And not only that, but the second surprise was it wasn't just the one murder. He was a serial killer. It just expanded from there. And, and it's now eight books later. And a whole bunch of serial crimes have come together and solved. So that's the quick and dirty story. <laughs> How did you feel when you discovered that your father might be not only responsible for Elizabeth Short's murder, but possibly other murders. 
it just didn't compute with me. I mean, I knew Dad had his problems. I had learned about the Tamar and the sex and stuff, and I knew she was telling the truth because I knew Dad had definitely had a sex problem, but murder, no way. And I didn't know anything about the Black Dahlia murder. When I went through the academy, we saw photos of the crime scene because it was such an infamous unsolved. But other, I didn't even know her name, Elizabeth Short. I was absolutely sure he had nothing to do with this. I made the mistake of following the evidence. You've got the two parts of me. You've got the son who loves his father and says, I'm going to be able to establish he had nothing to do with this. And then you got the trained homicide detective on the other side who's just following the facts and the evidence and is being, as I talked about earlier, is being very objective about the whole thing. The other thing is that I knew very little about my father's life. I didn't know all of these details until I got into the weeds of it. It was a son's journey to understand more about his father on a separate course, as well as the detective following the path of a potential crime. So if he was the person of interest in the Black Dahlia case, why was he never arrested? Was it just lack of evidence? It wasn't a lack of evidence. So there are three major myths in the Black Dahlia, okay? The first one is Elizabeth Short's missing week. We talked about a little bit earlier. There was no missing week. I was able to come up with 14 witnesses who saw her every day of that week, okay? And, and seven of those 14 knew her, so there could be no mistake. The last witness to see her was a policewoman who I interviewed who actually talked to her hours before her murder. The second big myth was it was a standalone murder, none before, none after. It wasn't. There, there were these serial crimes, and LAPD knew it. I discovered that LAPD was investigating at least five of these, what they called back then chain murders. They didn't have the term serial crime, but chain murders, that they were all looking at the same suspect. And the biggie was that it was never solved. It was solved. LAPD solved it, and the DA's office solved it. And why wasn't he arrested? Well, he was arrested for the, the incest crime he was arrested, but he was also at the same time suspected for the murder of his secretary. This is a year and a half before the Dahlia murder. Ruth Spaulding was his clinic secretary. LAPD suspected he overdosed her, and they were trying to put a case together, but he split and went to China, shutting down that case a year, a year before the Dahlia murder. How did your father meet Elizabeth? Well, that's a good question. Not exactly sure, but I believe all indications are that he met her actually as early as 1943. As I said, Man Ray, the photographer, he was here 10 years in Los Angeles from 1940 to 1950. Man Ray did a photograph called Minotaur, where it's a nude body, a woman's body cut in half, posed, carefully posed. Man Ray and he were good friends. Man Ray was our family photographer. Either Man Ray introduced Elizabeth Short to George, or George introduced Elizabeth to Man Ray in 43. I've actually got a painting that Man Ray did that strongly indicates that it was Elizabeth Short, and it's called Le Equivoque. And the face, Man Ray has the face as a crisscross pattern, an unusual geometric figure. Dad carved that same geometric figure on her hip during the surgical bisection and operation and posed it. So there's a whole bunch of linkage there. 
And that would have been in 1943. So let's talk about the secret files that the prosecutors had on the Black Dahlia case. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I put my case together and I go in secret to a district, an active head district, district attorney, a guy by the name of Steve Kay. And Steve Kay worked with Bugliosi and, and prosecuted all of the Manson members by himself. And he was co-prosecutor with Bugliosi on Manson. Highly respected head DA, uh, district attorney. So I go to him and I was much surprised he was still on the job, but he was. And I went to him and said, hey, I've got this case. I want you to take a look at it and, and review it. Steve takes about four months and reviews it. And he comes back and he says, well, I got to tell you, he says, you're probably right on a, a lot of these serial crimes, he says, but I would only file on two because I have a high filing rate. I would file uh, capital murder on your father, on Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia, and also on the Gene French murder that occurred three weeks later where he posed the body on the vacant lot. He says, those two I would file and I would win in a jury trial. He says, the others, you're probably right about them, but he says, there's not quite enough. I have a high threshold. He says, I would file on those two, and I have no doubt I'd win them in court. I said, okay, I'm going to go ahead and write the book and present it to the public and present it to LAPD. And before the book came out, I met with LAPD and Kay went with me, the DA, and presented this to the brass, the top brass, and they kind of didn't know what to do. And the problem is there was a major cover-up. But anyway, the book comes out, I'm on 48 hours, and Court TV and Dateline and do all of this stuff. And um, 90% are on board with it. There's a 10% that's saying, no, it's a daddy dearest, everything falls apart, blah, blah, blah. Steve Lopez was a columnist for the LA Times, and he gets digging into it. They had gone to him in secret and said, here's the story. And he goes to LAPD and says, hey, Odell, father's a black Dahlia. They said, go away. We don't talk about unsolved cases. They hadn't looked at it in 55 years. So then he goes to the DA, Steve Cooley, who was the actual DA, and says, well, I'm not spending a dime of taxpayers' money on a 55-year-old case. He says, but, you know, there is a file in the DA's vault on the Black Dahlia. Would you want to see that? <laughs> Lopez says, yeah. They go downstairs, open the vault. Cooley hands him this box. He goes upstairs into a room, sits down, opens it up, and out falls a picture of Dr. George Hill Odell. Says, whoa, he was a suspect. So he gets into it and does kind of a quick and dirty, you know, these guys are jumping from story to story. So he does an article. He was a suspect back then. And he says that there were these transcripts. Apparently they bugged up Odell House, this Mayan temple, Frank Lloyd Wright Jr. home for six weeks. So I go down to Cooley and say, hey, can I see the files? Can I make copies? He says, well, I, I guess I have to let you. I let in. So I copy everything, spend four months putting it all together. And what do we have? We've got a 146-page transcript. What happened was LAPD and the DA's office worked jointly together on, on investigating George Odell. And they pick him up, take him to the Hall of Justice downtown. Well, they've got him in a room. They go out and they break into the, our home on the Soden House and they wire it for sound, hard microphones in the walls, in the bedroom, in the living room, and they 18 detectives 24-7 around the clock for six weeks. 
and they're recording these live conversations. And they run a hard line from the house to Hollywood Station, the basement. I'll just read you a few of the statements from the transcripts. Yeah, that would be great. So these are actual recordings between February and March of 1950. He has no clue that the house is wired for sound, okay? And he's talking to a friend. You don't have the right connections at the DA's office. Don't confess ever. He says, supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. I can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. Well, that's the secretary he overdosed before the crime, and she could have connected him to dating Elizabeth Short. And then he talks about the murder of his secretary. He says, I put a pillow over her head, covered her with a blanket, got a taxi, called Georgia Street, receiving hospital, expired at 1239. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out, killed her. Then he says, I'm in trouble, Black Dahlia, passport, police have pictures of me and the girl. I thought I destroyed all of them. But the real kicker was on the third day of the transcripts, I'm reading it, there was a woman who tried to call the police. She clearly is drugged. She's staggering around. She picks up the phone and dials the operator. And uh, apparently she's been drugged and probably passes out. Then two hours later, I'm reading the transcripts, and I can't quite believe it. Um, February 18th, 1950, 7.35 p.m., Hodel Franklin House bugging tape, spool one. 4.20 p.m., woman asking for operator several times. Sounded as though she was crying. 4.25, woman asking for operator again. And then uh, 8.20 p.m., sounded as though the two men went down the stairs, entered the basement. And this is this Baron Haringa and dad. And began digging. A woman screamed. More blows. A woman screams again. And this is day three of the stakeout. And I'm saying, what the hell? Why aren't they out the door over there and doing a rescue? They're only like six minutes away from the house. But they do nothing. So basically, what we have, as I see it, is either a serious felony assault, but more likely I'm convinced it was a murder, on tape. You also kind of have to understand L.A. and what was happening at the time. Chief Parker was literally weeks away from assuming command as the new chief. He wants to clean up Dodge, get rid of all the corruption. L.A., it was a real-life L.A. confidential back then, and he wanted to turn it around and clean things up. So I think there was some midnight oil burning at City Hall, and they said, what do we do? If this comes out, we can't take, we can't take over and clean up Dodge. Maybe let's just lock this away for now and come back to it in the future. Of course, they never did. And, of course, the real sad thing is that he would go on to kill additional. That's where they have LAPD and the brass have blood on their hands. They just let it remain locked away for 55 years. So the woman that had called crying and then was later believed to be murdered, was that the Black Dahlia or another woman? No, that was another woman, the Black uh, this was in 1950, so this is three years after the Black Dahlia murder. Do you know who that victim is? No, we don't. All we know is what the transcript says. She probably was never identified. We do know that they believe there may be bodies buried in the basement. The DA back then in, in 1950 contacted a plumber who had done some work at the house and said, hey, you had done work in the basement. Did you see any digging or any graves? <laughs> the says, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I just, 
I just did my job and fixed what needed to be fixing. I wasn't looking around for graves. Well, oddly enough, fast forward in a, some years ago, I had the opportunity to have a cadaver dog do a search of the of the location, and he actually Buster actually alerted at four different locations in the basement. We recovered soil samples, and those came back and were analyzed by Dr. Arpad Voss, who is a, works at the body farm. They came back positive for human remains. And I, of course, went to LAPD and said, hey, you know, uh, we're too busy, you know, we can't do anything. The problem is LAPD doesn't, doesn't want to come out. If they verify my investigation, that they're throwing mud or blood on the hands and faces of our two greatest heroes, Chief Parker and Chief of Detectives Thad Brown, who was in charge of the investigation. And they're LAPD's two greatest heroes, so they don't want anything to do with this. It's like, you know, better remain unsolved and rather than damage our, our greatest heroes. That must be really frustrating on your part. How has your family felt about you writing a book about the Black Dahlia case? Well, it's kind of split, divided. I had two brothers. Mike's passed on, but Kelvin is totally on board. Tamar passed away a few years ago, but she's totally on board. Tamar's children, totally on board with it. The Filipino side of the family, so they're not on board at all. So in the end, after investigating your father, how many murders do you think he committed in his lifetime? So I've just come out with the early years. He started as a teenager and never stopped. So it's a two-book edition called The Early Years, which covers his crimes in the 20s and the 30s. And then, of course, his later ones are the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. And uh, so 50 years of crime, 50 years of murder, and 50 victims. So averaging one a year, let's say. And, you know, he was like a wild leopard roaming the lands and never caught and just kept killing until and died. He actually committed suicide. He took an overdose of second pills, and it wasn't out of remorse. It was because he had become, in his old age, he was 91, become infirm, and he was afraid he was going to be hospitalized and all their hospital bills would eat up June's future. She was 40 years his junior, so he overdosed and decided to exit stage right. And how does June feel about your books? She was the first one I notified before publication, and I spent four hours on the phone with her. She says, this isn't possible. Your father was a scholar and a remarkable healer, and none of this can be true. That was the last contact we had, which was 20 years ago. So she's definitely not on board. I suspect she knows, she has to have known and seen some of his insanity. She was married to him 30 years, but I don't think he committed any crimes. I think his last one was in 69. So I think basically she turned him around in the sense of getting him off alcohol and drugs and kind of cleaned up his life, got him on a a new road. In fact, there are indications that she probably did see, had her own suspicions. Why do you think what, what made your father want to kill? Was there something in his family background or do you think it was just the alcohol and drugs kind of made him, changed him? His whole theme throughout all of his crimes is the Avenger. He was a misogynist of the highest order. He was a misanthrope. He hated humanity. He had this stratospheric intelligence, 186 IQ, 
And oftentimes you will see serious problems. I think there's congenital insanity there. I think he was probably the victim of incest or sexual abuse, either from his mother or some other family member. He was continually being rejected by his peers because he was so advanced and ahead of them. And then the rejection from the professor's wife. Uh, all of this came together in a perfect storm to create this incredible monster. To my knowledge, there's never ever been quite a serial killer like him in that sense. Plus, this whole murder is a fine art aspect. What a fascinating discussion. How can listeners get your books and if you have an official website? Sure. It's stevehodel.com is my website. I do a regular blog there trying to update all the evidence. It goes back 15 years. So it's a great research for anybody that's interested in the other crimes. There are eight books, but it's really all one ongoing investigation. I mean, you know, it started out with Black Dahlia Avenger and it's never stopped. Wow, this has just been amazing. I've learned so much about the Black Dahlia story, and it's been such a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, it's great to be with you, JC. To learn more about Steve Hodel's spellbinding true crime books, please visit his official website at stevehodel.com. Steve's new book, Black Dahlia Avenger 2, is now available at Amazon.com or your favorite bookstore. The newly revised book includes never-before-published forensic evidence, photos, and previously unreleased documents. The Black Dahlia Avenger 2, he believes, provides the evidence to close the Elizabeth Short case that has often been called the most notorious unsolved murder of the 20th century. It's a must-read. Don't forget to subscribe to Death by Misadventure. A special thanks to our producers, Georgie Rutherford and Christopher Lang. This episode was recorded at Laguna Sound in Laguna Beach, California. I'm JC Nova. Thanks for listening.